take your Bibles this morning and we'll turn open to the book of Colossians. And it's page 984 in your pew Bible if we're turning there. Let's this morning, we'll turn open to Colossians 3. We finished verse 4 last week, but I want to go back up to verses 1 through 4 because it's kind of a whole section here, and then the last couple of verses of our text today we'll address a lot more next week, so it'll be helpful. We'll read through those, though, but uh, we'll spend most of our time looking at the first half of 5 through 9 and 10. Let's pray before we turn to God's word this morning. Father, we are thankful that even as we just sung, we are precious children in your eyes. We see the love of these parents this morning for these children that you have given to them, and we know it pales in comparison to the love that you have for your children. So, Lord, we pray this morning you would minister to us by your word, that you would speak a word in our ear of fatherly care and concern and discipline and instruction, that we might know you and that we might love you more fully and grow into maturity. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. Colossians 3 verses 1 through 11, and our text today will be 5 through 11. This is the holy Inerrant word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now our passage. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Let's be to God. Amen. Paul spent the first half, or we could even say uh, the first third of the book, depending on how you look at it, telling us about Christ and what Christ has done for us. And that's important to notice as we now turn to the last third of the book, or the last half of the book, in which Paul will begin to tell us what it is that God requires of us and what it is he's looking for from us as Christians. I remember a 
story that Sinclair Ferguson told uh, years ago. He said it happened to him about 30 or so years ago. He was uh, invited to speak at a conference, a large youth conference. And the topic was to know Christ that they invited him to speak about. And he said he went to this conference and he was to speak five times. And he spoke the first three times. And the leaders of the conference approached him and said, we need to talk with you. And so he was led into this room where all of the leaders of the youth were in this room. And he said that the leader of the leaders stood up and he said, we invited you to this conference to speak on the topic to know Christ. And we've listened for three hours and you haven't told us what to do yet. Sinclair said that he responded that these leaders were in danger of turning the gospel on its head. That they had invited him to the conference to speak about knowing Christ. And how could someone be told what they must do in Christ without coming to a comprehension of the beauty and the excellency and the greatness and the majesty of Christ. And so it's no mistake that Paul takes the first half or first third of this book and he's just walking through Christ. He's, he's telling us who Christ is, what Christ has done. And then based upon that foundation, he now turns to the rest of the book. He says, now this is what you are to do. This is what your life is to look like. Last week's text, if you look back there, Paul just finished saying in verse 1 that since we have been raised with Christ, we should seek the things that are above where Christ is. And we are to set our mind on the things above and not on earth that we are to be heavenly minded. And Paul, ever the good pastor, has just told them to be heavenly minded, but he doesn't just kind of leave it hanging out there. Now he's going to give specific instructions about how is it that our lives are to look heavenly minded. He's going to put some feet to this and he's going to flesh it out for us. Those who have received the grace of God, who God has poured out this grace upon, what are their lives to look like in relation to Christ? Christian's union with Christ, though it is mysterious, it reveals itself in our living. Look at what Paul does here in our text. This week, in verses 5 through 11, he addresses mortification, the doctrine of mortification, putting to death the deeds of the body. Next week, if you look there at verses 12 through 15 or so, he, he's looking at the doctrine of what we would call vivification, that you're, you're seeking to grow in righteousness and holiness, make yourself more and more alive in Christ. And then in verses 16 and 17, he addresses our life in the church. And then in verses 18 through 4.1 there, he addresses our Christian life in the home. And then in 4.2 through 4.6, he addresses our Christian life in society. And then he's finally going to get to his final greeting. So he's walking through these different spheres of life and saying, this is what you're to look like, Christian. This is who you are. Our union with Christ, though mysterious, it reveals itself in our living. And so Paul gives us what we must do now. He even uses that word down in verse 8. He says, must. Let's be clear about this. 
We, we cannot claim to be united to Christ. We cannot claim to know Him. We cannot claim to be a recipient of His love if our living remains unaffected. They go together. So Paul turns his attention to what we call the doctrine of sanctification. And since the rest of this book deals with sanctification, what I want to do at the, at the very outset today is just kind of set the context for sanctification. To help us understand wh where does sanctification function? What is the context or that sphere that Paul is setting up here? And then I want to look at, in this passage, I think he gives us three clear motivations for our sanctification. So that's going to be our agenda this morning, to look at the context of sanctification and then the three motivations that he gives for sanctification in the Christian's life. So first, the context. As we think about this, it's helpful to remind ourselves that holiness, that turning from evil, turning to righteousness, practicing what God has commanded has always been a mark or a characteristic of the people of God. We were created in the image of God in the garden. Adam and Eve created in the image of God. They were to be, as it were, kind of living, breathing, walking mirrors in creation, reflecting back to God His very glory, His very person. But they fell. So when God redeems a people to Himself, He redeems them to be holy even as He is holy sense. God is holy. He desires that His people be holy. And so we see that as far back as Leviticus 11, where God tells the nation of Israel, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter will echo this to the church when he says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This is so axiomatic, it, it, it doesn't even require mentioning, one would think. God is holy. A holy God demands holiness from His people. However, we don't just grab holiness out of the air or, or work it up from our own strength. Biblical Christianity knows no holiness that comes from pulling ourselves up by the proverbial bootstraps. This is not the wild, wild west. God reigns. And so He graciously Though He demands our holiness, He graciously works it in us. Just as our sanctification, our justification is tied to Christ, so our sanctification is tied to Christ. As we've said over and over in this book, Paul is pointing out to these Colossian Christians, look, Christ is your all in all. He even says that in our text down here in, in verse 11. He says, but Christ is all and in all. He, he's all. He's what you need. He's your justification. He is your wisdom. He is your holiness. He is your knowledge. He is your righteousness. He is your peace. He is your hope. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when we get to 1 Corinthians, Paul will say, Christ is your sanctification. Everything is found in Christ. We need God's grace to be holy, and that only comes by union with Christ. So Paul, that's why I want to back up to verse 1, because what Paul was doing is saying, look, Christian, you died with Christ. You died with Him. And you were raised with Christ. So, so now, because you died with Christ and you were raised with Christ, so you are now to live with Christ. One of the things baptism is signifying to us. You, 
died with Christ, you were raised with Christ, you're united to Christ. Now, live, walk with Christ. Walk in Christ. Your life of sanctification is lived in Him. I want to be very clear about this because, man, we make a mess of this. If we attempt sanctification apart from Christ, then it becomes just a mere moralism. Or it, or it becomes some kind of fruitless, pietistic aspiration. Sanctification apart from Christ, in effect, becomes a self-righteous effort. And this is the way of all man-made religions. So it's always in Christ. We would be sanctified. We will only find it in and through Christ. We're made holy even as he is holy in him. So what does that mean? That means that the life of sanctification is a life lived in faith. In faith in him. You're united to him by faith. And as we are united to Him by faith, he, he works in us by His Spirit to conform us more and more to His likeness, to His image, to His holiness. If I was pressed, uh, divine sanctification, I would say it is this. It is the work of Christ in us by His Spirit to make us more like the one we love. It's Christ's work in us by His Spirit to make us more like the one we love. Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it this way. It says, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Notice in the Westminster Shorter Catechism that phrase, are enabled. Biblical sanctification, though it is a work of God, it does not deny the need for you and I to work out our salvation. You see, it is Christ's work. It is His work by His Spirit. It is all by His grace. But, but God, in our sanctification, He maintains His sovereign activity and our human responsibility. His demands and, and our duty, they go together. He works in us, but He doesn't deprive us of our wills or our minds or our affections. He doesn't do violence to our persons, as the confession says. Rather, as Paul says in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. He's at work in you by His Spirit. He, he's, he's making our hearts and our minds and our affections enabled to pursue Him. Conform to him. He employs us in it. We're enabled by his grace. And he doesn't, he doesn't circumvent our faculties. He doesn't bypass your mind. He doesn't bypass your heart. He doesn't bypass your affections or your will. He, he employs them. And so it makes sense. Why then Paul here makes the appeal to us? Verse 5, put to death. He's speaking to us. Verse 8, but you must put them all away. He's speaking to us. Verse 9, do not. He's speaking to us. Grace 
God's grace and our duty, they go together in sanctification. I like to say we are Calvinists, but we're Calvinists who sweat. That is, we, we believe in the sovereignty of God over our salvation, every single aspect of it. But we also believe that in our sanctification, we are to labor, we are to work, we are to strive by all our might, by all his strength that work within us, to be conformed to his likeness, to grow in holiness, to grow in maturity. Well, that's the context of sanctification. Christ at work in us by his spirit to make us more like the one we love. Paul says that here. He says we are, verse 10, we're being renewed in knowledge. Notice our faculty there, the mind. We're being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. Renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. Is there anything more beautiful than that? You and I are becoming more and more like Christ. So why expend that effort? I want to look at the motivations that Paul gives in this passage for pursuing sanctification, for becoming more like this beautiful one. It's hard work, but it's necessary work. The question becomes, why should we expend that effort? And there are many reasons, but I want to highlight three from this passage this morning. And the first is our new identity. If you go back up to verse 3, Paul says we have died. That is why there in verse 5, there is a so or therefore. The, The Christian died to the dominion of sin. The Christian is no longer bound by sin. Paul says it was put to death. What? That old self. And so he's saying, whatever is still earthly in you, whatever is still focused upon the earth, you are to put that to death. Whatever is still sinful, you are to kill it. Because you were raised a new life. He says in verse 9, you, you are to put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. The old self and its practices. You, you, you threw them off. When you came to faith in Christ, that, that old you... And all of its practices, you you threw it off like a a dirty garment and threw it into the corner. That's the imagery. You're you're taking off one garment and you're putting on another. I think every child uh, likes to put on their parents' clothes at some point, and they think it's incredibly funny and fun. And uh, my son will come out and he will have on uh, my you know, shirt, and he'll have on a tie, and he'll have on my big dress shoes, and he'll, he'll, he'll tromp around, and he thinks it's absolutely hilarious. But what if I took my nine-year-old son's clothes and started to put them on? And what if I was standing here in the pulpit this morning with my nine-year-old son's clothes on? You wouldn't think it's too funny. You'd say, what's wrong with this guy? It's out of place. It's strange. But the picture that Paul painted is even more extreme than that. My mom has kept this this onesie that I wore when I was an infant. It's blue, it's soft, it's beautiful. What if I decided I was going to take that onesie and I was going to put that on? And you see me struggling just to get my foot through the neck of the onesie, and then let alone my thigh and my waist, though my waist is quite trim. 
you, you would think it's ridiculous. It's nuts. It makes no sense. You've outgrown that. That's no part of you anymore. That, that's for those old days. Paul's saying, so it is with you, Christian. You, you took off that old self. You, you, you threw it into the corner. It's gone. It's dead. Stop putting its practices on. Stop acting like that anymore. It's ridiculous. You're radically different. Those old habits of ours, those old practices, they no longer fit us. And trying to live in a way that marked our old life just, just seems silly. Goofy. When I was, uh, when I came to Saving Faith in college, uh, my freshman year, I went home that first Christmas. And uh, in my family, I am, I'm the only boy. So uh, I am my mom's only son. Uh, I am my grandparents' only grandson. And they always wanted a son. And so I could do no wrong growing up. Uh, I, I was loved dearly by my grandparents, and, and they especially loved about me that uh, when I was a kid, Lord, I think, I used to see it as, as, uh, as something that was awful, now I see it as a grace, but he slowed down my mind and my tongue, it seems, as I've gotten older, but when I was a kid, and when I was an adolescent, in those early years of college, man, my brain just fired, and my tongue fired, and it was quick. And my grandparents loved that. They, they loved just that turn of a phrase and, and that I was always making fun of people and making them laugh. And I was incredibly sarcastic. It just like that, have sarcasm. And I came to faith that freshman year in college and I went home and I was sitting down at lunch with my grandma and grandpa. And while I was sitting there having lunch, Unbeknownst to me, I, I, I hadn't thought about it, but I wasn't cracking the jokes about people. And I wasn't being sarcastic. And they weren't laughing. My grandma all of a sudden turned to me over lunch and she said to me, we don't like this new Jason. We want the old Jason back. I was devastated. Those were the most hurtful words that I had ever heard. Now I count them as the most wonderful words I've ever heard. I think they will only be surpassed by those words that I hope to hear one day, and that I strive to hear one day. I appear before the throne, well done, thy good and faithful servant. I changed. I was a new Jason. And she noticed it. You have a new identity, Christian. It's not you, that old you anymore. So you put those things to death. Paul says you mortify them, you, you kill them. If you, you kill a man or an animal or a plant, you, you take away its strength, you take away its vigor, you take away its power, you take away its energy. You take away the ability of that thing to act. And, and Paul is here personifying sin. And he's saying, look, kill it. Whatever is left in you, kill it. Mortify it. Put it to death. Steal its energy. Steal its power. Steal its very life. 
doesn't have dominion over you anymore. Take away its strength. You have a new identity in Christ. You're united to Him. So he says, kill sexual immorality. Verse 5. Pornea in the Greek. It has no place in your life, Christian. No place. He then says impurity or the misuse of sex. Passion, that is affections that are misplaced. Evil desires. All things that, that, that are set on earth, a mind that is set on earth, would, would grab a hold of these things. In this list, it's not meant to be comprehensive. We could turn to many other passages and, and even just Paul's writings to define other sins. But, but he gives a breath here. And, and he starts with the most visible, doesn't he? And he goes then to the most hidden. And, and he's giving a breath here. And that most hidden one, coveting. He equates coveting with idolatry in verse 5. That, I find that incredibly interesting. Coveting or desiring something that is not yours, that, that you don't possess. We exalt something or someone in our affections, and, and it takes the place of God. Ah, oh, they have such a great life. They have such a loving wife. They have such a good job. They have such a fast car. They have such obedient children. They, they had such a good vacation. And, and it begins to dominate begins to grip, it begins to seize, and it begins to motivate, and it begins to shape, and it begins to inform you. Coveting, it becomes idolatry. It, it takes God off the throne and puts something else there that's driving you. Paul says mortify it. That belongs to the old man, the man who had his mind set on earth, but you've died with Christ that old man died, so now you live in Christ with your mind set upon heaven. You've been raised with Him. He gives another list of sins to put off and to put to death in this passage. And, and that is later down in verse 9 there, or before it, verse 8. And he gives that list because not only is our identity new and that it is united to Christ, but our identity is new because we're united to one another. And so he says, look, you have a new identity in Christ in the church. You belong to Christ and you belong to one another. So therefore, there shouldn't be anger between you. There shouldn't be wrath. There shouldn't be lying. There shouldn't be this double tongue. Because you know what? It not only disrupts your, your intimacy and not only disrupts your relationship with God, it disrupts your relationship with one another. And you have a new identity, Christian. You're identified with God and you're identified with his people. Stop pursuing these things, Paul is saying. Kill them. Put them to death. A second motivation beyond our identity that he gives for sanctification is Christ's appearing. If we go back to verse 4, he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is coming back for his people. 
He does not abandon us. You will see him face to face, this one that you love and this one that you are seeking to be conformed to and that you are seeking to become more like. He's returning. He says in verse 10, this one that is returning, we're becoming more like. He's, He's coming. So if you're going to see him and if he is eternal, And Paul is saying, if he is actually returning, which he is, then why is it that you're going after the fleeting things of this world which are temporal and will disappear? He's going to appear and they're going to disappear. So why go chasing after them? And when he returns, verse 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. He's coming. And when he comes, it will be in judgment. He he will pour out his wrath upon these fleeting things. And and Paul gently reminds us in verse 7, you too once walked in these ways. You too were living in them. You and I, apart from the grace of God, when he returns, he would be pouring his wrath out upon us. But because of the grace of God, Christian, when he appears, it will not be to pour out his wrath upon us, but it will be to sweep us away and take us off on a honeymoon. Forever. So Paul says, he's coming back. Your bridegroom's coming back. So you wait for him, and you fix on him. You neglect these things that are fleeting. final motivation Paul gives in this text is Christ's beauty and our enjoyment. It's subtle. He says in verse 10, as we've said a few times, we're being renewed in the image of our creator. And he presents that as a good thing. Because Christ is beautiful. Because Christ is glorious. And as we grow in holiness, we're coming more like this beautiful Savior. And this, for me, this is personally the the great motivation, maybe the greatest motivation I find for seeking likeness in Christ and sanctification. I think I'm going to become more like Him. It's one that I love. When I'm having a good day in Christ, I try to remind myself that sin is no friend. A sin is just a thief that is trying to steal my joy in Christ, that is seeking to divert my attention and remove my focus from that which is most beautiful, my Savior. Sin steals. It steals what is rightfully mine, a full view of Christ, and thus it weakens and it it darkens the soul. John Owen used a picture of this where he said it's, it's like a cloud that, that comes in front of the sun, sin is. And, and, and the cloud covers over the heart. You know, the, the rays of sunshine are still there. The sun didn't go anywhere. The, God's love is still shining upon the Christian. But you're not going to feel its warmth. You're not going to see its glory. You're not going to enjoy all the benefits of it. Because it's clouded over. And sin just steals that from you, Christian. All the 
beauty of God, all the love of God, that, that, that full beauty of Him. Sin just clouds it. I, I think about it like putting my hand in front of my face. You know, sin is my hand. If I put it in front of my face, I can still see, but I can't see as well. I can't make everything out. We're the full view of Christ. Let me close with just two applications. One is that we must continually... And the other is that we must progressively put to death sin. You know, sin is never satisfied. It, it just wants to consume us. I was thinking this morning uh, while I was getting ready, I was thinking, you know, there, there is no small sin. Because every small sin wants to become a large sin. It wants to consume us. It wants to, to return us back to that old dominion, that old life that we had. It wants to dominate us again. And so there really is no small sin because it's all aiming at being a large sin. So our sins will keep working until they kill us or we kill them. One of the two. We're in a battle. Our battle is against sin, and it's not on foreign soil. It is the homeland. It is in us. And so we have to continually battle. He, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. It's in you. Isn't that what makes it so hard? If sin was just something that was outside, I could push it away, or I distance myself from it. I could kind of shoo it off and say, ah, stop bothering me. But it's not without. It's within there. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And this is what makes it so difficult. We, we have to keep battling it, this thing that is within us. The enemies that are without are always easier to defeat than the enemies that are within. And we have enemies within the walls. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick, Jeremiah says. Paul's writing to Christians been freed from sin's dominion, from the old man's life, but it's still there. And that old life, it's, think about it like it's a thief that just kind of is hiding around the next corner in the darkness, and it's just looking for an opportunity. It just wants to bring its head out again. It, it just wants to come out again out of the darkness and slay us if it can. So Paul is saying, you've been set free, so live like it. Strike a deadly blow whenever you get a chance. Put it to death. Slay that old man with all of his propensities towards sin. Wage holy warfare at every crossroad of your life. Fight him continually around every single corner. It'll be a continual fight. There's always another dark corner. There's always another opportunity. An indwelling sin will always be in us while we are still in the flesh and in this world. Therefore, we will see this as a continual work in this life. I thought as a young Christian that as I got more mature in Christ, that there would be less and less sins to deal with. The truth is, the more and more I mature in Christ, the more and more I'm aware of all of the different sins. And I 
shrink to think about what it'll be like in 30 or 40 years. The Christian life and our battle with sin, it's not a 100-yard dash. It's a, it's a 12-round heavyweight boxing match. We must continually fight with all our energy for the duration. And when we've defeated sin in one round, we must gear up again because another round is coming. The fight is not over. And if we fall from sin's blow in one round, then we get back up and, and by God's grace, we fight again in the next round because we dare not lose this title. You must, Paul says. You fight continually. You dare not rest for a moment because it cannot have the victory. Mortification, killing sin, is a lifelong process that must be attended to every hour of one's life. And I hear that and I think, ah, how discouraging. I'm already wore out thinking about it. Well, let me give you a little more discouragement before we're encouraged. As we mortify, as we kill sin, you will not destroy it. We won't destroy it in this life. We won't banish it from our hearts. We aim at that. We desire that. But you won't do it. John Owen said, There is no battle with sin that you will defeat and you will get rid of both the root and the fruit completely. I think that's true. It's there, hides in the darkness. We may have success over some certain sin for a time. We may even have a continued triumph over it, but the root is still there. I was thinking about that this week. I, when I came to faith in college, I had, oh, I had a, like I said, my tongue was sharp. And I, I, I used to cuss all the time, curse all the time, use the Lord's name oh, in vain all the time. And when I came to saving faith in Christ, it was almost like just a faucet got turned off. It just stopped. And I can't remember. I'm sure I have. But I can't remember the last time I cussed. But I had a dream this week. And in my dream, I was cussing up a storm. Why? Because it's still in the heart. It's still there. The root's still there. So I confessed when I got up. Don't be discouraged. This is the great encouragement, I think, of Paul in this text. Is that though this is a continual fight and though that sin will never leave us in this life, the ultimate victory is already ours in Christ. It's already ours. You see, we're not alone in that ring, and the victory has already been secured. The bout has already been fixed. A blow has already been dealt that guarantees that sin will fall and it will never rise again. And you will. He's already taken you and seated you in the heavens. It's done. And let me tell you, any group of soldiers that would go into a battle and they were guaranteed that they're going to win 
They would enter into it with all that they have. Look, you're going to survive this. You're not only going to survive this, you're going to have victory. Christian, that's the news for you. You're not only going to survive this, you're going to have victory. It's assured. He dealt the death blow to sin, to that old man. And you're already seated with Christ in the heavens. So we just seek to keep killing it, keep putting it to death. Lastly, we seek to mortify not only continually, but progressively. Here's a dangerous real-life application. Ask your spouse later today, or ask your children later today, or ask your best friend later today, or ask your sibling later today, or your parent later today. Am I more like Christ this year than I was last year? Am I more like Christ this month than I was last month? Sanctification is, is to be progressive. I keep coming back to that phrase in verse 10 as I studied this passage that we're being renewed after the image of our Creator. We're being renewed. It's ongoing. It's progressive. It's by degrees. And we're becoming more like Christ. Our sanctification is progressive. Our holiness grows as, as we're ascending up to heaven. But it doesn't always feel like it, does it? went on a backpacking trip in New Mexico when I was in high school. And on that backpacking trip, I was introduced to switchbacks. I'd never seen switchbacks before, but, you know, if you're going up this mountain and you're going to make your way up it, it is so steep that you, you don't go this way all the time. Sometimes you go this way. And you go back and forth, and you go back and forth, and you go back and forth, and you go back and forth. And it feels like you're not going anywhere. It's like we're, we're never getting there. But then after a little while, you look back down the trail, and you say, oh, my goodness, we've, we've gone up 200 yards, unbeknownst to me. There are other times because of difficulties or trials or, or different things that you have to go down. That you go down to eventually go back up and to make it a little easier. And you slog and you keep going and you keep going. And, and there are times that it feels like you, you, you just haven't gone anywhere. And then you look back down on the, on the plane where you first began. And all of a sudden you realize that we've ascended quite a height. It's progressive. And there are times that you feel like I, I can't take the next step. I don't have it in me. I, I can't get any air in my lungs. I'm, the breathing is hard. I can't make it any further. But you just keep going. And eventually you reach that summit. You can look down the whole way that you've traversed. The Christian reaches the summit progressively in Christ and by the strength of Christ. And it's guaranteed. Because you're already seated there. He's already opened the way. He's the trailblazer that's gone on the path before you. And he carries you. 
He gives you grace and sustains you as you're on that path. And He keeps beckoning you and keeps drawing you and keeps working. And before you know it, you and I will be there. So it's worth killing these things of the earth that are still in it. Putting them to death. Because there's going to be a day that I'm on that summit and I'm staring my Savior in the face, face to face. Most beautiful of saviors. And all of these fleeting things of the world will mean nothing we will see that he is truly all in all, as Paul says in this passage. So mortify. Don't keep killing those deeds of the flesh, knowing that your victory is already secured. Let's live to his glory. Be with me. Lord and our God, we are thankful that you are a God who secures our victory in Christ. We're thankful that you are making us holy even as you are holy. That one day we shall appear before your throne without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. That you take us in this life by the work of your Son's Spirit in us. That you conform us more and more to this one that we love. That we would have more and more of a taste of heaven on earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.